Making Media Tells a Story of Our Media Business Colossus. If you aren't familiar with our platform, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find our latest episodes across each of our shows, the transcripts, supporting third-party materials, and even some written content as well. So whether you're an investor or an operator, we're out to create the content that we wish we had when we were in those exact roles. Invest like the best, business breakdowns, Web3 breakdowns, and founders each cover different angles of the ecosystem. And our special series like 50X and Return on India are targeting niche topics. Again, make sure to check out joincolossus.com for more on the platform. Let's do this. Welcome to Making Media. Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier. My gosh, that was such a good start to an interview. Welcome back to Making Media. This week, we cover another niche media business. This niche just happens to be the sport taking the world by storm. Good niche to pick. Our guest, Thomas Shields, launched The Dink, a newsletter around pickleball, in late 2020. And since then, he's really established The Dink as the authority on the sport of pickleball. So now they operate a platform of media properties with the newsletter, podcasts, and video content. And they've expanded in terms of having investments into various other pieces of the pickleball ecosystem. We talked a lot about the early days, day one of launch, and it was surprising to hear some of the pivots that they've taken since those early days. One of the more interesting things is that the Dink was actually a content to commerce business at day one. So we get into all of that with Thomas. There's a lot to digest here with this story. And it's exciting because it's still very early days. So please enjoy this conversation with Thomas Shields. All right, Thomas, pumped to have you here. Want to start actually before you launched the Dink. I know you were a banker. I know you worked at a startup. But how much experience did you have with building audiences or creating content of any sort? Did you have a big Instagram presence? Did you have a big social media presence somewhere else? What were you doing prior to launching that first newsletter? Yeah, I guess that's a good question. I would say only with my personal accounts, which was essentially nothing, <laughs> like a thousand followers on my personal. Were you actively posting on them? Was it a daily thing or anything? No, it was here is me apple picking with my family and me playing lacrosse in high school. That's is pretty much all it was. I did have a little stint of making vines when Vine was popular. My friend said I was good, but didn't have many followers there. So that's pretty much the extent of it. And then between that and your very first newsletter for the Dink, what's the journey there? Yeah. So, I mean, the idea was let's do it on the side. Let's spin up a side hustle, see if I could flip a business while I'm still working full time. So I had left banking at that point and was working at a startup. And it actually had a lot to do with like media scaling content for direct-to-consumer companies. So I was sort of in that world. I was a decent writer in high school. I seemed to know my way around social media. At least it's intuitive for me. So let's use the social to grow an audience and let's just start writing a newsletter. Now, I happened to pick Pickleball because it was just relevant to me at the time because my family was becoming obsessed with it. And then it exploded. So it was definitely some luck there. It was Pickleball the very first side hustle newsletter that you had tried or had you tried something else and then did Pickleball? Yeah, from a newsletter standpoint, I think so. Yeah, I think Pickleball was the first one. Yep. 
And then do you remember what the first newsletter, what it looked like, what it contained, what kind of information? Because I guess the point I'm getting at is when you're very first starting something up, often you can have the internal thought of what value do I provide to this ecosystem given that I have very limited experience in it? Yeah, it was absolute trash. I didn't know what I was talking about. The graphics were awful. It was on MailChimp. I didn't know anything about MailChimp, so I was hacking it together. I had made it a point to get to 75 subscribers, which seemed like a lot at the time before I sent the first issue. So there were readers. Did they actually open it and go through the whole thing? Who knows? But yeah, I was basically just going out and finding content that was already out there and then curating it into a digestible format. And Pickleball was weird because there wasn't really any traditional media outlets. There was one Pickleball magazine. It's like a physical magazine. Beyond that, it was you just have to find information from Facebook groups, random blogs here and there, and going around like Reddit or being savvy. So we were the first ones to really take the news of the pickleball world and the stories and put it into a digestible format. But none of it was original content. It was just curation. When did you start thinking about actually adding new value into the system rather than just curating existing stuff? So maybe I take that back. We did add value in that The goal was to make people laugh and entertain people and be super witty and irreverent. And so I I think people really gravitated toward that because until then, the sport was made up of pretty much mom and pops, mostly like boomer run businesses, boomer run media companies, if there were any media companies. Nothing against them, but they have a different way of marketing and copywriting and speaking to their audiences. So when we came in sort of just slinging it, if you will, I think that was super refreshing and it was something people hadn't seen before. I think we were good at finding what stories people actually wanted to read. So we were serving as like a filter of sorts. So people could, I guess, save time and know that when you open our newsletter, it was the most important stuff and it would make you laugh, hopefully. Dom really laying it on hard there, suggesting that aggregators don't create any value in the world. Yeah, that's not what I meant. (laughs) Just want to make sure I'm not associated with that take. But I would say we were very much just aggregators and putting a nice bow on it. We weren't doing the work. In a world of infinite content, it's only more and more important to find curators who do a good job collecting that all and serving to you in a nice way. So I think that was adding value from the jump. Did you eventually pivot towards gathering the stories and breaking the stories yourself? Obviously, you're creating a lot of new content now and a lot of different forms of it. But just in terms of the newsletter specifically, were you getting scoops on things at a certain point in time? Was there an inflection point where it it started to transition? It's a very young sport and having access to the pros wasn't difficult. Having access to the people that mattered who were making decisions wasn't difficult. So we were able to get certain pieces of information ahead of time, or we were able to go dig up stories that other people just weren't paying attention to. Today, we are, people send us press releases all the time. If they want to break news or announce something in Pickleball, they come to us. And so the stories basically just come to us. And we mostly break the stories on our website now because the newsletter goes out three days a week in the morning. So news breaks all the time, who knows when. So our news website is the primary place to do that. And then we use our social channels to say like, hey, check this out, go read it. And I know your family was big into racket sports and your uncle, cousins have the big business that revolves around racket sports. Did that play any role in terms of making those industry connections? Obviously, it gave you exposure to the game, but between the players, sponsors, anything else business-wise, did that give you some advantage versus any random Joe going into the pickleball world? Yeah, definitely. So my 
uncle is a tennis wholesaler. He supplies high schools, country club pro shops, D3 schools, and other retailers with racket sports equipment, running equipment, things like that. It's called Fromuth, but he had never gone into the retail himself. He was always just wholesaling and pickleball was that opportunity. I had built a brand. So he came to me and said, let's use the brand and create a store. So at one point we were running the Dink and Fromuth, what is now Fromuth Pickleball as one entity under the Dink brand. So we were doing media and we were retailing all sorts of equipment, balls, paddles, shoes, apparel, you name it. And at that point, we actually invested in a Sprinter van, wrapped it in our Dink logo. And I was driving it around the country from tour stop to tour stop. During that time, I was able to become really close with the commissioner of the Pro Pickleball Association. I met all the pros. They saw me running around with my camera and hustling. And we created a lot of relationships, made a lot of friends that ended up paying dividends down the road. Eventually, my uncle and I looked at each other only like four months into this journey being like, yeah, this doesn't make a ton of sense. We probably shouldn't run these things together. So we split them out. And now the dink is just media. We do have some e-commerce and stuff like that. And then from with Pickleball is one of the biggest retailers in the sport. And we're still able to do a ton of business together. But yeah, my uncle's brand and the relationships he had built in tennis and the credibility allowed us to enter Pickleball and definitely helped me create a lot of relationships and make a splash. If you're driving around the country in a van, creating content, showing up to every tournament, people pay attention to that. So in that regard, I was pretty lucky. And that gave me the confidence to leave my job and pursue it full time. But then, you know, four months later, when we split them apart, all of a sudden I was like, all right, well, sink or swim. I got to make this media thing work. And so that's when we really started to say, okay, let's build out this team. Let's monetize this thing. And let's really think about it as a true business. That's fascinating. What was specifically the reason why you said this has been good for a few months, but it doesn't make sense for us to continue this together underneath the brand? My revisionist analysis is... Frumuth is a 50 plus year old family business. It's very professional. They're all about customer service. They'll never say anything that's out of bounds. And it's just the most reputable stand-up business. And they do a great job. The dink is, we kind of sling it. We're a little sarcastic. Sometimes we say things and people say, you shouldn't say that. And we're like, we'll be the judge of that. And trying to run an irreverent media brand and a buttoned up, 50-year-plus family-owned retail business as one simply does not make sense. And so we were just buttonheads in terms of how do we position this thing. And eventually we were like, all right, split them apart. Some good Thanksgiving conversations around this stuff. Yeah, definitely. Well, people talk about the Barstool and Penn Breakup as being two well-respected brands that maybe just didn't belong together. And I think this is maybe even the bigger example of that. That's super interesting, though. I guess in terms of those connections that were forged from just pounding the pavement, being out there, was it really just the in-person exposure to the commissioner and some of the players and them seeing you? Did they hear about your content prior to that? What do you think got you the hook into now you're just very much ingrained in the sport in all different ways? But what was the real initial hook? Because people could easily look at it and roll their eyes, but something created the relationship between you and them. We had already created a brand. The pickleball community was pretty small. And so if you're doing something in the sport, everybody else in the sport tends to know who you are at this time. Now it's like grown exponentially. It's crazy. I think we were just the first ones 
we made an Instagram and I looked around, I was like, what are the other pickleball Instagrams? I think the closest one had like a thousand followers. Really the only place you could find pickleball content was on Facebook. And we started doing it via email, on Instagram, on TikTok, on Twitter. We spun up this blog. And I think we were in many ways, just the first mover, or we were the first ones to move with a good brand and a strong voice. So people took notice pretty quickly. But then, yeah, driving around in a van, creating content all the time definitely turns heads. And I think it made people take us more seriously. They're in it for the long haul. They're doing something creative here. They're thinking outside the box. They're making a statement. And I just don't think that reputation ever waned. And it only grew from there. And do you think it was the quantity or the quality of what you're producing that separated you from the rest of the pack? Because you mentioned there were other accounts and there were other places to get some of it, but you separated yourself. Was it more in one direction or the other? Definitely more quality and not quantity, but maybe consistency. You knew when our newsletter was going to come out, we wouldn't miss a day. But yeah, I would say just quality in terms of the way we did it, coming at it from a different angle, more like millennial-minded marketing with a fresh voice versus what was already out there, which is, in my opinion, a little stale. Was there publication from the other sports or other areas of business that you were enamored with or thought, okay, we could use elements of those pieces and put them into a different playbook for Pickleball? Are you saying, were there other businesses out there we sort of used as a model? Yeah, inspiration, yeah. The obvious. I was always looking at Morning Brew. I remember having a call with Austin Reef maybe only a couple months into starting the newsletter and he was giving me feedback and he was actually very nice and helpful. And I also looked a lot at uh, front office sports. That was something I modeled our newsletter after. And then the hustle as well. I mean, I was a religious listener of Sam Parr's podcast, My First Million. I would credit that for actually giving me the confidence, I would say, to actually go and try this thing. And what's the thinking behind three newsletters a week? Is there anything scientific there or just that's what happened just to begin with and that still happens today? Yeah, no, I mean, the more you publish, the more inventory you create, and the more you can monetize the thing. I think at a certain point, there's diminishing returns. I think we could probably go to four days a week, but five days a week, I think we'd be pushing it. In the early days, we were one every other week, and then once a week, and then twice a week, and then three times a week. Especially early, there was a major lack of news. There just wasn't that much to cover. So if we did published more frequently, we would have just been putting crap in there. Now there's tons of news and tons of amazing stories, especially with all the buzz around the sport, the capital coming in and everybody just trying to make moves in what has now become the fastest growing sport in the country. And do they all serve the same audience? Or at this point, are you able to segment different audience types out based on their interest in pickleball? Yeah, it's something we think about a lot. There is the avid consumer of pro pickleball, the pickleball junkies, and they want to know the latest on a pro tour. They want to know the gossip. They want to know who signed what contract. They want to know which players signed with what new sponsorship with a brand. And then I would say there is the bigger segment of the market, which is the casual player, the people who might not know who the actual pros are and they don't care and they don't tune in on the weekends, but they play every week and they want to improve their game. They want to figure out, hit a forehand better and things like that. Instructional content. They might want to figure out which paddle should I be playing with? So product reviews, product breakdowns and things like that. 
I mean, our newsletter, though, I would say is pretty comprehensive. So we have everything from improving your game. Same with our news websites, everything from improving your game to which paddle should you buy to the latest on the pro tours. What does the avid fan demographic actually look like? When I think of something like esports, I have a picture and an image of what that avid fan looks like. It totally spans the spectrum. It's really interesting. Our podcast is at a point now where typically if I go to a pickleball tournament and now more and more, if I go to drop in a rec play, like someone will say something and be like, hey, I listen to the podcast or I read the newsletter or something like that. And they're always different types of people. I could not qualify them into one bucket. It totally spans the spectrum. All my pickleball friends are the most random allotment of people. And all the people who are on Twitter every day, it's like, they're all over the place from every background, every age, every gender. It's pretty cool, actually. A bunch of weirdos. I guess there's a correlation to what makes the sport popular, though, is the 8 to 80 anybody can play. You've referenced a few times now. It started out as a side hustle. And it's one of these things where when I hear the story, it's the exact playbook that a lot of people will reference. You start something on the side, and then once it gets traction, it becomes big. Then you can lean into it more. But as much as I hear about it, I rarely hear of successful outcomes. And I think the missing pieces often, it does require a lot of hard work. So it's really interesting to hear how it's worked for you. What was that timeline like in terms of you were working and doing this on the side to I'm ready to leave my full-time job and then spend a full career on this? I was ready to make the jump as soon as I could justify it. I mean, my goal had always been to start my own company. It was sort of part of the logic of going into banking was I'll learn what a good business is and what a bad business is and learn how to market a business and what's important to a potential buyer. I went to a startup to see, okay, how does a startup actually function? There was three of us that were hired, so employees, four, five, six. And so I got that behind the scenes, but my goal was always to start my own thing. I just didn't know what that was going to be. And I had plenty of very bad ideas. But yeah, I started writing the newsletter, got traction pretty quickly, at least enough to signal to me, hey, there is something here if we go deeper. When we decided, my uncle and I decided to combine the two, that was when I was like, okay, but we got to go full time on it. And so I made the jump earlier than I probably would have. Because again, when we ended up splitting those businesses apart, all of a sudden I was like, we were creating a lot of content to try and drive sales and market the retail side versus actually monetizing via ads. And so at that point, it was like, okay, we got to really drill in on what are our partnership packages? What are we actually selling? Who are we going out to? We got to create decks. We got to create a sales process. Yeah, definitely a unique way that it all unfolded for sure. Yeah, it's interesting because content of commerce is almost an endpoint for a lot of media businesses in terms of where they think they can get to. But in your case, it's almost the starting point and you broke it apart in a thoughtful way. But clearly seems like there were some benefits to doing that from the get-go, which is super interesting. In terms of where your thought process is now, you mentioned building something that could be big and almost built to sell. Have you changed your mind on that just in terms of how you are designing the business? I know you've recently... We'll get into your plan to go beyond pickleball, but just your mindset around how you're approaching business strategy what you're looking to do, exit strategy, all that good stuff. Is it still the same mindset around that in terms of making this a really attractive asset that I could potentially sell in the future? So my goal from the get-go is let's flip a business. Let's build something that I could sell. About a year ago, we started raising money and the idea was let's take the Dink model and apply it to other emerging sports, disc golf, padel, 
cricket, I think is going to be very big in the US with all the investment going in there. I even think that more established sports that are outside of the big four, like a UFC or an F1, I think there's a lot of opportunity to create media properties there like ours. So we started raising money for that, raised about 30% of a seed round. And then a buyer came to the table actually and said, hey, I want to buy the dink. So at that point, I was like, cool, let's do it. And we had had other people kicking the tires. This conversation seemed a lot more promising. We went to LOI. I met with them in person plenty of times. There were lots of negotiations. And it seemed like we had really identified a deal that worked for both of us. And I was ready to sell. At that point, I went to my investors and said, hey, appreciate your confidence in us, but I'm actually going to wire you your money back because we're going to sell the dink. We hadn't signed any of the paperwork. So I was able to do that. And they were cool. The investors were cool about it anyway. But that deal ended up getting put on ice. And all of a sudden it was, well, now we're back at square one. And during that time, we had neglected all the other things that we wanted to do. All of a sudden I'm sitting there with, okay, we have just the dink. We didn't go do these other sports that we wanted to do. And in my mind at the time, I just let things bounce off me. I don't really dwell on them that much. So I wasn't too affected, but ultimately I look back like, okay, blessing in disguise because it required me to say, let's focus on pickleball. It's this insanely fast growing market. We're really well positioned. Let's double down and go deeper before we take our eye off the ball, trying to conquer all these other markets. So over the last year or so, we started to think about how to really grow the business, not just from the media side, but as more of a portfolio. So we had created that parent company, Upswing. Well, now that parent company is a portfolio of minority and majority investments in other pickleball-related businesses. So we have the Dink as the central asset. We have minority investment in an app, a minority investment in an apparel brand, a majority investment in a leagues and events company. And then we were just about to partner 50-50 with somebody to launch a bunch of e-com stuff, but we decided, let's bring it all in-house. You're coming on full-time. So we're launching a pickleball subscription box. We want to do some of our own apparel, some training products and things like that. So we've now come full circle where we're like, all right, we're content to commerce again, but we're going to do it according to our brand in our way. But the way I look at the Dink now is like, yeah, the media company is the engine, but really it's as diversified as you can be within one niche like pickleball but a diversified of ventures in this space. And that's really how we're thinking about building. So we are raising money again so that we can build out the team and bring in more experts, people who are smarter than I am. But yeah, I think we want to dominate this space before we try and go dominate others. It's amazing. You've crammed 25 years of business into <laughs> two or three in terms of the life cycle of different things that have happened. Yeah. I'm wondering the minority investments you talked about the parent level now, did you use cash flow from the business to make those or were they more relationships you'd had? Either they were sponsoring some content in the past and you thought, okay, we can do the structure this stuff in a slightly different way. Yeah, both. So I would say trading audience and influence for equity positions and then also using cash from the business to make investments. So a little bit of both. Each one is slightly different. And the pivot in terms of going into some other sports, which honestly, I was planning to ask you a lot about because I think to your point, you can go deeper and just spread your tentacles in the growing pickleball market, or you could take this model and try to apply it elsewhere. And I think there's pros and cons to both. What made you originally say, I want to pivot what almost feels like a hedge in terms of diversification into other sports? Was it somebody else coming to you with the idea? Was it you specifically saying, you know what, I want to 
go broader and apply it elsewhere. What was the train of mind there? I think the idea was, okay, I know how to build an audience and I know how to create a newsletter and it's not very capital intensive. So let's just go do it in these other sports where people aren't doing the same thing, or at least not doing it in an impressive way. What I would consider to be an impressive way. I figured if we take our model and go apply it to these other sports, we'd be able to do that. I still think in all those sports I just named, the opportunity is there. Go spin up a newsletter in that space. Every newsletter bro now tweets out why like they're 10 hacks for growth and stuff. Use those growth hacks. And there's a lot of information out there because nobody can start a newsletter without shouting about how they're starting a newsletter and how good their newsletter is. So use that to your advantage. You take those playbooks. And I think there's a lot of potential in pretty much any niche, not just sports. But on the flip side of that, this is a media podcast. So one of the things that I don't think a lot of people are talking about is the saturation of newsletters. Now, I don't think the saturation of newsletters is a problem in the sense of growing an audience where there's too many newsletters to build an audience. But there are so many newsletters now that you're all competing for the same advertisers. And that creates essentially this race to the bottom of who can offer the lowest CPC. And so if you don't have some sort of differentiator, like if you're not really niched down, we're able to get beyond that because we can charge a higher CPM because we're in such a specific niche with a really curated audience. But I think there's a new newsletter every day. And when you go outside of like the pickleball world, now we're competing with all of them for these brands who are advertising in newsletters. And that becomes very difficult. So unless you're able to really build a substantial audience or build an audience that clicks on everything that you talk about, like has a ton of loyalty then you are competing with so many different people. So I think saturation becomes an issue when it comes to monetization from the ad model side. So you would need to figure out other revenue streams, whether that is commerce, community, or a host of other things that people are doing in the media space. How dependent do you feel on the economy of pickleball, if you like? You just talked about most of your ad dollars are coming from pickleball itself, the ecosystem like obviously the content is all pickleball related. I imagine there's some codependence. You have an opportunity to grow the sport as well. How do you think about that relationship? Personally, I spent a lot of time thinking about how we can get outside of just advertising with the endemic pickleball brands. We do to a degree, but I think there's a lot of opportunity when we go upstream to like a Whoop or an Athletic Greens. And I do think in those conversations, we still have the advantage of, hey, pickleball is really hot right now. These are healthy, active people who want to improve their lives. And so we're able to better differentiate ourselves than a lot of the other newsletters out there. So we can still fight that battle. You're able to put together more robust partnerships. They can cut a bigger check. It's not beat around the bush. They've got deeper pockets than a pickleball paddle brand. So we're trying to figure out how to get upstream and break out of the pickleball ecosystem. But at the same time, we're introducing e-commerce and we're doing these other ventures. So we're figuring out other ways to monetize as well. In terms of the league itself, it seems like the best sports leagues going all the way back to the NFL with NFL films and then eventually Hard Knocks and more recently Formula One, they understand how to harness media, create a gloss around the brand and actually harness it. And I get the sense that you're pretty ingrained with the actual leagues themselves. You have some relationships there with the commissioners. How much do you feel there's a partnership there between you and the leagues? And is that a piece of the business story that you can actually have an influence on this sport's future and 
gaining adoption, gaining more popularity. How much do you feel like you're working together with the league versus you're covering the league? There's a true arm's length distance. They've stated that. They repeat it, that we add value to the sport. Any sport worth its salt, especially if it's trying to say, hey, we're the next big pro sport, needs media coverage. They need people reporting on it. I think we add value to them. And in return, they give us access. Like We don't have to pay to go to the events. We always get a press pass or a VIP pass. We can go film. We can go create content. We can go do whatever we want. At the most recent Major League Pickleball, ahead of the championship match, we did a live podcast on court for the audience with two of the pros. Well, three of the pros was my co-host is a pro as well. And then for the Major League Pickleball draft that just happened in New York, we went to Central Park and the draft is happening right here on camera. And just off camera, we had a table where we're doing a live analysis. So yeah, there's definitely like a mutual appreciation and trade and value in that way. But I think at the same time, it's like, well, if we're reporting on a sport, we can't exactly be on the payroll of these organizations. Even though we get accused of that <laughs> pretty frequently, people have their theories. But Major League Pickleball thinks we're biased toward Pro Pickleball Association and the APP Tour thinks we're biased toward Major League Pickleball. And we try and stay in our lane, call it down the middle. But I think we add value and they in turn give us access and information ahead of time and give us the press releases and stuff like that. And you've talked about a podcast, obviously the newsletter video just now, and you're, you've got big social channels as well across the platforms. What have you learned about each of those different properties and their value to the business that you're building? I've learned a lot. So I used to care a lot about growing our social media presence because it was the shiny object. Like it's fun to have followers. People are liking and commenting and DMing all the time. And that's definitely been valuable, but it's been valuable in a way that I didn't really realize is it just gets our brand out there and serves as essentially like lead gen. So it creates a ton of inbound from advertisers and it just helps with our brand authority. But in terms of being able to actually like monetize social or convert social followers to newsletter readers, that actually has been super challenging. We haven't invested as much into social media as we used to from a time perspective. And yeah, I would say all of our different channels are pretty different in terms of demo. TikTok and Instagram just reflect the average age of those users. Our newsletter, I would say, is more so 40 and up. That's the majority of readers. Our site is all over the board, but it tends to lean a little bit older. And then our social media presence is just younger. Our podcast, on the other hand, is really cool because my, my aunt hears this. She's going to kill me, but I was just with my aunt. She's an avid pickleball player and she has a bunch of friends who play pickleball. And she's like, my friends have a crush on you. Like, they listen to your podcast. Interesting. Didn't expect that. But at the same time, my little brother just joined the Michigan club pickleball team. He's a junior there. And he showed up and all the kids are talking about my podcast. And he's like, that's my brother. And the other day we talked about how we're helping college clubs get off the ground with one of our other investments that we have. And there was a ton of inbound off that. So our podcast is all over the board. We got a bunch of college pickleball players who listen to us. And then we got people in their 50s and early 60s who listen to us. So. I thought it was interesting earlier when you said you turned up to the tournament and we were talking about the newsletter at the time. You're like, oh, the podcast. Yeah, people come up to me and say, oh, I would listen to your podcast. It just is a very different relationship you feel from the other side to your podcast host. Interesting. And the sponsorship side, do you sell a bundle across the dink or do you sell each podcast sponsor, newsletter sponsor, and video sponsor? 
brands typically come in when they inbound, they're looking for one thing. They want to advertise the podcast or they want to do the newsletter or they want content on the blog. But we tend to use that as a funnel and then introduce them to everything else that we do and try and cross sell in that way and put together more robust custom packages that cross our different channels versus just one. How's that cross selling work for you? I'm asking for a friend. You mean like, how do we do it? No, is it actually successful? Because it's one of those logical things. They come in one and, oh, we have this entire platform from which you can choose. And that's supposed to be one of the main benefits of having like multimedia. But I've actually been shocked at when people come in for one thing, they typically just want that one thing. And that could just be me as a shitty salesperson or my friend, excuse me. But I'm curious <laughs> if you've seen success with that. For the pickleball brands, we've seen a lot of success with that. For brands outside of the space, not so much. We work with Viori on our podcast and they just renewed with us, but we really haven't been able to get them to do anything across our other channels. They just want to do the podcast ads, which is fine. And certain brands outside of the space that come in, they're looking for one thing. But I also think the bigger the company, the more divided the marketing and paid media teams are. And so if you are going to sell across all these different channels, you got to get all these different decision makers in. And that ends up just being a challenge. It takes more time. And they ask, a lot more questions. And I want them to stop asking questions and just write us a check. Hey, man. Yeah, you really helped me out there with the back part of that answer. Once you started out, I was getting a little bit worried there. Talking about the league as a whole, and one of the bigger things has been who owns teams, the amount of celebrities that have gotten in the mix. And it's interesting, again, going back to esports, that was something that happened a lot in that space too. And then I just look at all of the bigger sports leagues. And most of these came up with owners that were obviously very rich, but didn't necessarily have the same type of cachet. It was only after the success of the leagues that they really got that cachet back. And maybe there's a few exceptions here or there, but Jerry Jones wasn't a media star necessarily. So do you view it all as a net positive for the market itself? Is there any risk towards overexposure or getting a little too much out there without the right infrastructure? How do you sort through all of that? You certainly, all news is good news type thing, but how do you think through some of this celebrity involvement and understanding that it's not going to be their primary focus? I think it's been good in that it's just created more buzz around the sport and made the average person more likely to say, man, I just keep hearing about this pickleball thing. I guess I'll go try it. And then there's a chance that they convert into an avid pickleballer. So from that perspective, it's good. Just growing the sport and its presence in our culture and the zeitgeist. Is that the right word? But in terms of actually creating the next big pro sport, there's been a lot of conversation around, is it too much too soon? What are they actually investing in? Because the viewership numbers aren't there yet. I think regardless of which tour or league we're talking about, they have a long way to go to really justify these sponsorships that they're asking for. I think a lot of these athletes more look at it as a risky VC investment with a lot of upside, but if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But if it does work, hey, I just cut a small check and now I own a pro team. So I think that's how they're viewing it. But I think the challenge of the pro game right now is we need to get more eyeballs on the pro sport. Participation is crazy what's happening. According to some numbers, we're already double tennis and there's more people who play pickleball than do yoga. It's really compelling what's happening on the participation side, but trying to get those people to then tune in on the weekends to watch these pro matches has definitely been a challenge, but we're still seeing these massive brands come in and write checks for sponsorships. My question is, in a couple of years, do they look at leagues and tours and say, well, 
you guys aren't backing up what you said you were going to deliver on. The numbers don't justify these ad dollars. I think everybody's trying to solve for that right now. How do you really build a brand, create the narratives, create a compelling product on camera, create the next spectator sport? Do you think that's just a function of time? We did a business breakdown, which was one of our other shows on Paddle recently. And I was stunned by how many people reached out to me directly on LinkedIn after I just hosted the thing. I was talking to an investor and they were like all in their job description, growing Paddle was the big feature there. And I was like, of all the other episodes we've done, that's by and far and away the biggest reaction I've seen to one of our episodes. And I don't think it's to do with the content, it's the sport itself. And I imagine Pickleball has a similar enthusiasm behind it. But then I wonder whether there's an air pocket, as you're talking about, of there's so many people that want to grow this thing, but obviously you need the demand to meet the supply and how you bring those two things together at the level at which you monetize well seems like a challenge that you just outlined. Yeah, I don't know. I think every sport is different. Everybody watches the NFL. I say everybody loosely. Most people have an allegiance to some NFL team. And the vast majority of those people have never thrown a football or played a football game. They've been able to create a really compelling TV product. Padel, I think, is similar to that. I don't think, just given the infrastructure challenges, building a Padel court, paddle. <laughs> I think of paddle as paddle tennis, just like platform tennis. So I say Padel. We'll go with Padel for now. <laughs> is there a difference? Genuine question. Yeah. Platform tennis is in a cage, typically outdoor. You play in the winter. The floors are heated. The equipment's a little bit different. That wasn't the Padel being referenced? Yeah. Padel is you're in a glass box and it's wild. It's wild. But I think that's why I think Padel has more potential in terms of spectator sport because it's really exciting to watch. But the participation side, I think, will struggle because it's so expensive to just build a court. For pickleball, I mean, I can throw up a court in my driveway. I tape down lines, order a kit from Amazon for a hundred bucks and boom, I'm playing pickleball. But on the flip side, a lot of people say it's not that exciting. There's these long drawn out dink rallies, like these short shots at the net, how we got our name. And it tends to look a little slow. If you haven't played it, you're what am I watching? So I, I think it has that challenge. But at the same time, hey, golf... People put on golf when they want to fall asleep. That's been successful. So I don't know. Careful what you say around Dom. Big golf guy. <laughs> hey, I play golf. I love golf. I'm bad at it, but I play it a lot. And once I started playing, then I started watching it on TV. But when my dad used to watch it when I was little and I had no interest, what the hell are we watching? Like, this is a snooze fest. Every sport is a little bit different. And I think everybody's trying to figure out where's pickleball's space in this whole thing. Yeah. You mentioned earlier about taking investment into the dink now and using that to build out the team. Curious where you want to strengthen the team, what the team looks like at the moment and where you want to put resources. Yeah, I would say everybody on my team does not have a background in what they're doing. <laughs> and the best kind of teams. But we're scrappy. <laughs> we're scrappy. We got hustle and we figure it out. And it's gotten us to a really great point. But if we want to go to the next level, I want to bring in people who have been there, done that, have a lot of experience. And I think just by doing that, we're going to double the business overnight, essentially. What do you mean by that? Sorry. When you say people experience in what specifically? Every function of the business. I'm running a media company, but I come from finance and startups. I'm not a media person. We might have rough experience that translates. I'm not going to walk to my whole team and say who has good experience and who doesn't. But we've all had to figure out things as we go versus having brought on people who have done this in a previous role and can bring that expertise 
and know what the blueprint or the path forward is versus just testing and figuring it out as we go. My goal is to, one, just build a team because we're all at capacity, I would say. So we just need more foot soldiers. But at the same time, I want to bring in expertise, people who have been there, done that, run media companies, run e-commerce, and done all these things that we want to do so that we feel we're well-equipped to go take the next step here. And so really raising money just to bring in new faces and do that faster versus just taking the cash from the business and hiring a few people at a time. We want to go hire six to seven people by the end of this year. And I think we'll have a few new people starting in October, which is really exciting. What's the first role that was highest priority? E-commerce, CMO, and CRO sales type of role are the three that are highest of priority right now. Makes sense. Winding down here, one of the final questions that I have is, if you just look at the pickleball ecosystem now, what usually happens in these is you get a value chain and there's the league and the teams and the media coverage and then the people buying the advertising around all of it. So where do you think the biggest opportunity or most value lies in terms of the pickleball ecosystem right now? If you had unlimited dollars that you would invest into one spot that could just be buying ads through the podcast because it could get eyeballs and, and attractive returns? Or where do you think the biggest dislocation is in terms of that ecosystem? Okay. So I think the biggest value unlock and the highest potential to create a really big business in pickleball right now is the infrastructure. So building out facilities, places to play. But at the same time, that's where the most capital is going. And the amount of decks I've seen for the top golf of pickleball is insane. And in many ways, I think it's just going to be the matter of who is the first person in that market. But there's definitely going to be saturation. There's going to be a lot of losers, but there's going to be some really big winners. And so I think that has the most upside, but I think that would be the toughest battle to fight at the same time. Other than that, I mean, if you can figure out how to be the top equipment manufacturer, and there's two brands right now that really stand out, and I know that they're doing some insane numbers for how long they've been around and just being able to create a good product and ride the wave that is the growth. Like eventually the growth is going to plateau though. So being able to foresee where that is so that you're not taking on too much investment or doing too much, the Peloton story where... They're investing in ramping production. They're building out these manufacturing plants without realizing that the pandemic was what really caused the surge in demand, not demand that's going to be consistent for the future. They ended up over-investing and then that completely backfired when demand waned and everything plateaued. I think you got to be careful. But right now, I, anybody who's creating something in pickleball is very much benefiting from just being able to ride the wave and the insane growth. There's a lot of startup pickleball brands who... They use literally the same manufacturer, but just because there's so much demand and they put a brand out there, like they're able to turn a profit pretty quickly. The question is, can that become a $10, $20 million business? Probably not. If you want to do a nice little side hustle and see what happens, you, know, you could probably be successful there if you have a decent econ background. Yeah. Or own the manufacturer, lower risk play. Yeah. Right. That might be the answer, actually. Go buy up the manufacturing plant. Yeah. Well, final question. I know you're doubling down on pickleball, but if you were to start one other version of the dink in a different sport, what would be the number one sport you would pick? Where's the opportunity that you think is most interesting? Yeah, that's a good question. I think Padel is very interesting, but I think we're already well positioned to be that if we want to be. That's an easy one. Yeah. I think that sport still needs to grow though. I think we'd be a little bit early. 
I look at sports like the UFC and I don't see a lot of digital media properties that are doing what we're doing and creating a brand for themselves in that space. But I could say that for most niches in most sports. Yeah, there's a natural extension there in terms of Fidel and then UFC, I would consider to be a much more mature sport, but perhaps most of the coverage is happening in very specific areas. It's unique because it was so well covered on ESPN in the early days. And obviously that's a different type of coverage than what you can offer, but it's a super interesting sport and its own case study, just in terms of how they've built that thing and made boxing the forgotten sport in terms of combat. Yeah. Maybe the other thing you could do is somehow figure out how to make a relationship with the sports books and be like, okay, so where are people betting their dollars right now? What has the most money coming in from a gambling perspective? And then just create a media property there and go after the DraftKings of the world, just get a big check. Yeah. I think that would be interesting. Yeah. Some would say the Barstool, McAfee, some of these deals that have been struck, that played a huge role, I think, in terms of the NFL being at the forefront of all that. But yeah, where the dollars are going and where the dollars surround the ecosystem. Sports gambling is huge. So awesome. Well, awesome to talk with you. Similar background. So it's fun to hear how you're approaching all this and excited to watch what you keep doing. You have hit the zeitgeist in terms of being the pickleball newsletter that caught a lot of attention and was following an interesting playbook. So excited to get more of the weeds on it. And thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Appreciate it. Sounds like we might need to get you a different role. I'm not sure you're the sales guy Colossus needs, given that Thomas has got no problems cross-selling over there. It was very clear in terms of, if you listen to that entire conversation, some of those brands don't have big budgets. They're more willing to spread it around. Once you get into the bigger national brands, more established brands, they have people who make decisions in different categories and mediums. So I won't take that slander against me. I will defend myself. It was good to hear where it works in terms of that cross-selling. Are you going to cut it at the first part of the answer? (laughs) (laughs) I will love if you do. I will 100% love if you do. I actually thought that was an interesting takeaway. That was something that I filed in the back of my head and thought to myself, you know what? This makes a lot of sense. And this is exactly why it happens. And despite what everyone says, he's an interesting example because there are a lot of common business pieces of advice. If you have a platform, you can cross-sell across shows and across your newsletter and this, and that will make a lot of sense to offer to brands. And it doesn't really work that well because there's a lot of friction associated with it, but it can work in some cases. For him, he's followed the playbook for a lot of different things and it's worked out pretty nicely. It's funny how you phrase it in the question because you're like, these advertisers come to us asking for something and I try and sell them something else and it turns out they want the thing that they came for. (laughs) How counterintuitive is that? (laughs) Well, the reality is if I were to elaborate on it, it usually starts out as, yes, we have this and I would also mention we have this, would love to talk to you about everything or maybe we're sold out on that specific thing that they want. And then they have this conversation about everything else that we have to offer. And then it turns out, nope, they just wanted what they want specifically. So I could have added a little bit of nuance, but yeah, you can continue to slander me. I'm here for all of it. I'm just getting you back after you said about not adding value through curation early on, which um... (laughs) it was pretty cut and dry the way I heard it. So phrasing questions is difficult. That's the first takeaway. Yes. Yes, they are. My biggest takeaway and what I'm excited about is that he's doubling down in the space. I didn't like hearing that it was going to go into other sports and try to cover other things. I liked having the authority for pickleball and having 100% focus on that. So not that anybody cares about my viewpoints, but it makes me happier that they're just pushing into this and sticking their heels in the sand and planting their stake. 
Yeah, he took five questions right off our sheet there by saying that actually we've changed. But we had both talking ahead of time about this. And that was really something that we wanted to focus in or understand exactly the strategy behind taking this model and going elsewhere where it felt like there was more to play for in the pickleball world. Yeah, as you was explaining, I was like, yeah, not that we would have said you should not do that. But it was interesting to see how that worked. And I think he's right when he said, I think it's a blessing in disguise that the deal didn't close and I actually went back and doubled down on where we are. And then I would have liked to have gone through the sequence of events after that to be like, okay, what's my strategic priorities here? How do I want to structure this thing? What do I want to focus on first to be able to grow it? You didn't get to ask those because the plan has changed. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting to hear how he's pivoted. And I like that they are so quick to pivot. I think what you mentioned in terms of the amount of business experience that he's gotten in a short period of time is pretty awesome. But I think there's something that was apparent there throughout that conversation too, which is we rarely cover things that are truly in the zeitgeist. We tend to cover things, longer shelf life, we're focused on what's interesting to us, which oftentimes won't always correlate to what's in the news. And in the rare moments that we do, like something like paddle or padel. I'm entirely confused as to the differences there, which I need to do some research after this episode. But I think there's something to riding waves. And we are so blatant in terms of not going after some of that stuff. And you can see what happens when you do ride a wave. Yeah. Firstly, I think the confusion lies here with paddle. Paddle, I think in Europe, is called paddle. In America, called padel. I'd argue, given the US infrastructure for paddle is far smaller than Europe, that you should take our convention. That game that Thomas was referencing sounds interesting with a heated court. But anyway, that's what I played on a platform, heated court, but you're outside, you play in the winter, got a nice clubhouse. Usually there's a court on each side of it where you got chili and all stuff. This is the one time that I played it. It was an excellent experience. Why don't you just play in the summer and then avoid the heating costs? Because you play tennis in the summer. Is it tennis just on a platform? No, (laughs) it's a different sport and you can use the walls, but it's at the tennis club. This is bizarre. Anyway, not a sport I'll be playing anytime soon. But going back to your point about the zeitgeist, I mean, even today I was having a conversation with someone about breaking down Tesla on business breakdowns. And I was like, I'm nervous about this. I think it's because it's too in the zeitgeist. I always shy away from things that are in the zeitgeist because I tend to think that mean reversion will happen at some point and then we'll end up looking foolish. We always run away from it, which probably is something that we should work on. What a brilliant media mind. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. I run away from it. <laughs> All risk. Oh, man. There. Capture that right there. I think you're right. You know the stakes are high and there's a certain standard that needs to be met. So when you're going to do it, you want to do it right. But I think there's probably an opportunity to find a happy medium, especially with some of the things we're doing. I think we have done it and we've seen what happens when you do it. Definitely. There is something, and this is a very consistent thread through every Making Media episode we've ever done, about doing things in person. And I don't know whether it's just your memory is stronger when you do things in person in business and then you put an outsized emphasis on that specific thing. But you know, hearing about his journey driving around from tournament to tournament, meeting people with his van, makes me think of events that other media businesses do and how much they talk about events and or other just in-person interactions. Those physical experiences that just seems to make a difference to these media businesses, either whether it's through like events tend to be just higher margin, but with what he was doing, it was more of a connections thing. It wasn't even necessarily generating money at the time, but it was a longer term play, which obviously he didn't know ahead of time. But I guess my broader point is like finding a way to do more in-person stuff as a business seems like a wise thing to do. 
Yes. I think there is a differentiation between just doing in-person things versus spending time with people specifically. So being in front of them and actually having conversations with them that don't have a 30-minute window with a clear thing that you want to get out of it. Even if you have a 30-minute meeting that's in person, you're going to spend some of that time before and after walking, observing things. It's the serendipitous nature of in-person experience, which you don't get digitally. So I'm 100% with you. And I think that's what creates true relationships versus digital relationships always feel a little bit more transactional. I think it was interesting to hear and that clearly made a difference paired with that whole content of commerce angle from day one, which was really interesting. I don't know how he convinced his uncle to merge his 50-year-old business into this two-year-old media business. That seems like an interesting conversation. I think it was a piece of the business, not the (laughs) overall, but maybe the pickleball business. When he was describing it right away in terms of, oh, it's this historic business that's very conservative. I was like, I I know where this is going. I know 100%. (laughs) But need to hear taking a different angle and approach to it from the get-go. And then zooming to the later part of our discussion, we know when he's talking about building out the team and how he wants media experience in the team. How do you think about that as an operator of a media business with people in it that don't really have any media experience? Yes, I think 100%, if you put somebody in place that has made those exact type of deals that you're looking for, there's a huge value in that. If I could find somebody who struck partnerships with big businesses that weren't just traditional podcast ad reads, something much bigger than that, and almost had a enterprise sales type experience and partnerships specifically with media brands, yeah, sign me up. I think that type of thing where you really understand how these things work from the inside is beneficial. The challenge is there's a huge gap. And if you get the right ambitious people who are scrappy, you're not just getting a replacement level value for the person, the average person in those other industries. I actually think you can get really, really high. There's just this 5%, let's say, who have the actual experience they'd be looking for. And those people are hard to recruit. So I always think it's like, you got to get it right. And you don't want to half-ass it and make the wrong hire because it could be totally damaging. That's how I walked away from it was, yes, I would 100% invest behind that if that opportunity arose and the right person was in the right spot to do it. I think that makes a ton of sense. The other fun thing was just how he credited my first million to giving him the confidence to go and do this business. Just again, shows the power, I guess, of podcasting, but also of media businesses and how influential they can be on people's lives. It's not an understatement to say his whole life has changed very meaningfully because of some people that he listens to on a regular basis. Yeah, I completely respect it. And I think they do a great job of not just purely myth building. It's easy to take these people and rewrite history and say they were always at a much different level than anybody else around them and they were destined to be this way. They certainly give that type of respect, but they break it down into the tactics and things and make it a little bit more approachable or relatable. And I think that's honestly, it adds a lot of value because it gives people the courage to do entrepreneurial things. I had heard a lot about Thomas beforehand and it sounds like he's always had a knack for entrepreneurial endeavors. So I think he had had a lot of that inside of him already. Yeah. Very cool. Anything else from you? That's all I got. It was a pleasure. And I know I will be shipping you off here for a couple of weeks. So I will miss you on the podcast. I'm sure the listeners will as well, but we'll be excited when you come back in a few weeks. Yeah. I'll be listening with a slightly better view than I currently have. Excited to see what you get up to and look forward to 
huge bump in audience growth. That's what tends to happen when one of us goes missing for a week or two. So I'm excited for all our new listeners to be here when I come back. It's usually been just one of us that has left though, specifically <laughs> one, and it wasn't you. So big shoes to fill, but yes, we will get there. Yeah, we'll be fine. All right, awesome. We will talk to you next week. Thank you as always for listening. Thank you.